Peace Jack coming to you from the Sports and Spirituality Library in my apartment in Verona, Wisconsin. And what I have here is uh, Great Hitters in the Major League by Frank Graham, 1969. It's got a little seasoning to it. Um, one thing I really like about these books is that... Uh, you know, they're, I would say they're from uh, teen or teenagers to adults can read this. Uh, zero profanity in it. This will not be a... Uh, this will be a baseball book that will have, have kids with their bat in their hands, not uh, guns in their hands. That's what I like about these books. So... In the spring of 1936, the whole baseball world was talking about a young man who had never seen a major league ballpark, Joe DiMaggio. Although this young man had a trick knee and injuries so serious that no one knew whether or not he could play a single game once he arrived in the major leagues. He's on his way to the majors with more publicity than any rookie had ever received before. You don't have to worry about this, Bill, said a scout, who had seen him play in the minor leagues. He's a great ball player. The scout was talking about Joe DiMaggio, a young Italian outfielder from San Francisco. Joe was the son of a fat fisherman and several of his Older brothers were ball players. There were no big league teams on the West Coast in those days. Joe's older brother Vince played for the minor league team in San Francisco. But when Joe showed up for a tryout, he was so good that the team sold Vince and Joe in center field in his place. Soon Joe became the outstanding player in the minor leagues. All the big league teams wanted to buy him from San Francisco. Then one day, Joe stepped out of an automobile and something happened to his knee. It popped like a pistol, he said later. The pain was terrible. I could hardly stand up. I went to a doctor that night and he told me I had, I had pulled a lot, lot of tendons. It bothered me for a long while. Joe's name bothered a lot of Major League Scouts, too. Many young players never recover from a serious knee injury, and the Scouts soon lost interest in DiMaggio. All the Scouts, that is, except for who worked for the Yankees. They decided to take a chance on him. They bought Joe's contract from San Francisco and told him to report to the Yankees training camp in Florida in the spring of 1936. There's much excitement in the Yankees group that spring, or Yankees camp that spring. Babe Ruth had retired from baseball. Lou Gehrig was still a great player, but the Yankees needed more help than one great player to bring them back to the top of the league. Everyone is eager to see if DiMaggio was as good as the people in California claimed. And if he was that good, did he have the courage to come back and play with the, with the, National, with the championship baseball 
after that serious knee injury. The rookie who arrived at the Yankees camp was a cat was a tall, slender young man, twenty one years old. He smiled readily, but he was very shy and he seldom spoke to he seldom spoke to anyone. When he was when he stepped on the field, however, he was the center of attention. A right-handed hitter, he stood at the plate with his feet spread wide and stepped into each pitch with graceful, powerful swing. He was just as impressive as he took his position in the outfield. There has never been a more graceful outfielder or one that who could make difficult catches look so easy. He ranged over the outfield with long strides, pulling in fly balls wherever they were hit. And he threw the ball back to the infield as if he had a cannon hidden on it up his sleeve. There was no doubt that DiMaggio was giving the hard-hitting catcher. I'm sorry. There's no doubt that DiMaggio was going to be a star. He joined Gehrig and Bill Dickey, the hard-hitting catcher, in the create and creating another murderer's role for the for the Yankees. Some people, some people, it is true, sneered at the Yankees for a while as just a bunch of window breakers. They called the team. They meant that the Yankees had nothing to offer but a collection of big, strong fellows who were now long drives. Could break windows and buildings across the street from the ballparks. But to Maggio prove the Yankees could do more than that. Time after time, he made marvelous catches to rob enemy hitters of base hits. And when the enemy runners tried to take an extra base, Joe would cut them down with powerful, accurate throws. No other team stood a chance against the Yankees. A pitcher would seem to be getting along fine for a few innings, but soon Gehrig or DiMaggio or Dickey would hit a pitch right out of the park. The Yankees would win another game. A newspaper man wrote this little verse about them. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. If Gehrig and Dickey don't, DiMaggio must. Joe became known as I'm sorry, let me say that again. If Gehrig and DiMaggio don't, Gehrig must. That's better. Joe became known to the fans as the Yankee Clipper. In his rookie season, he was named to the American League All-Star team. The next, the next season, he led the league in home runs. In 1969, he batted 381 to lead the league. When Gehrig, who was fatally ill, had to leave the Yankees, DeMont Gio seemed at times to carry the whole 
team on his broad shoulders. 1940, the Yankees slumped to third place. The fans asked if this wonderful team finally was falling apart. They started slowly again in 1941. Then something happened that suddenly brought the team to life. On May 15th, DiMaggio made one hit and four times at bats against the White Sox. The hit did not seem to mean anything at the time. But then day after day, Joe kept slugging the ball. Soon the fans realized that he was that he was coming within range of one of the baseball's oldest oldest records after 44 years earlier, we, Willie Keeler, had safely hit in 44 straight games. Now DiMaggio closed in on the uh, on that record. It was one. It was easy to. It was easy to see why no one, during all of the intervening years, had come close to hitting in 44 straight. Pressure on Joe increased every day. The crowd and even even the other players were were tense through the early innings of every game until DiMaggio made his hit. It seemed as if the fans came out not to not so much to see who won as to see whether DiMaggio got his daily hit. No one had ever seen so many so much attention. No one had ever had so much attention directly, solely at one player since fans walked into the ballpark to watch the babe hammer home runs. July 1st, the Yankees played the Red Sox in a doubleheader at Yankee Stadium. The stands were filled, and many of the people had come from long distances to root for DiMaggio. Joe collected two hits in the first game and to tie the old record. Then as the crowd roared its encouragement, Joe smashed the fifty the forty four year old record with a solid hit in the second game. Even as men the sports writers who seldom cheer at ball games rose to their feet to give the great hitter the applause he had earned. Day after day, Joe continued to hit. Having broken on the old record, he seemed to want to set one of his own, one which no one would ever come close to. Batting streak finally ended after he had a hit in 56 straight games. It took two Kenny Keltner, it took two sensational plays by the Cleveland third baseman Kenny Keltner to hold DiMaggio Hitless. The other the other Yankees, inspired by Joe's remarkable hit record, pulled themselves together and became an outstanding team. Since more once more, they won the pennant in by nineteen by seventeen games and beat the Yankees and beat the Dodgers in the World Series. I want to say this about. Uh, I want to say this about DiMaggio. I don't know if people know this, but he had like a 
after he got stopped against when Kellner made those two diving stab diving stabs and threw him out. What happened was he went on another eighteen game hitting streak. So he was he would have been like seventy four games. So so he hit in seventy three of seventy four games. That's what's so remarkable. And nobody's even coming close to that fifty six. You know, Pete Rose had a 44-game hitting streak back in uh, 1977. And maybe 76 or 77, I believe it was 77. And, uh, and Paul Mauser had 39 games, 1987. And he was the talk of the, he was the talk of the major leagues. He was, he had a lot of, he had a lot of, uh, the thing was for Mauser, I'm going to say this too. I believe Mauser ended up with like 3,356 games he, he had hit in. Anyways, it was like 33. It was 3,300. I can't remember the exact amount. But he was hurt a lot of years. Pulled hamstrings. Hurt his uh, wrist by swinging, pulled the rib cage muscle. You know all these injuries. Yet he was still, he was still one of the best hitters ever. You know, I think it was thirty-three hundred nineteen games. He was one of the best hitters I've ever, I've ever seen and ever heard of. And uh, I saw him play a few times. That's memorable for me. He was that awesome. I don't know if he was, I believe, and I'll say this, he did not have DiMaggio's grace, especially in the field. And, uh, but the man could hit just like Joe DiMaggio, and you don't doubt about it. I'm not saying he was as good as DiMaggio, but he could hit as like DiMaggio. So DiMaggio had become the great player his admirers had pre predicted. He never lost his initial shyness. He was not able to crack jokes in an easy, an easy manner at some of his teammates. One day while listening to the Yankees humorous pitcher, Goofy Gomez, joking with the other players, DiMaggio turned to a friend and said, I'd give anything if I could do that. Joe had two. Joe had a few friends among the ball players. He had a lonely life, often eating by himself and then going back to his hotel room. Everyone else has a home and a family to go to. Joe once told a newspaper man, "All I've got when I go back to my hometown." hotel tonight is an empty room and a box of fresh laundry on the bed. Although he was shy and kept to himself, Joe was liked and admired by his teammates. They recognized him as something more than a great player. He was also their leader. 
So when they say something about going to dinner by himself, um, Phil Rizzuto is the guy that was usually with him. And it's pretty, it's a pretty good story about Phil Rizzuto and how he was as a Yankee and how him and Demise were best friends. And Lefty Gomez too, just with a few doors down from him, he was one of the he was one of the best friends, and uh, you know Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> having Marilyn Monroe for a wife was like having oil and kind of oh, was such a weird combination. It was like oil and water. So as long as I can remember, a Yankee pitcher said. When the Yankees took the field, they all waited for Joe to make his first to make the first move. Nothing was said about the custom, but somebody held back and wanted for Joe to lead them out of the dugout. Like most other ball players of his time, Joe may have been Joe may have lost several of his best years when he joined the army during World War II. He was older, of course, when he returned, and he seemed to suffer injuries more often. Still, the Yankees could not win without him. As DiMaggio goes, so go the Yankees. The newspaper men like to say they were were simply stating a fact. Joe was injured, the Yankees lost. When he was healthy, he was their leader, and they're a star. Joe had a fine season in 1947, leading the Yankees to the World Championship. 1948, he suffered from leg injuries, and the Yankees could not win. Joe played as often as he could in order to keep the team to an independent race. During the closing days of the season, Joe could hardly walk. But he went into the lineup to help the Yankees try to catch up with the Red Sox and Indians. On the field, <clears throat> on his best, on his last day of the season, he slammed four hits at Boston. But he received a little help from his teammates, and the Yankees lost. <coughs> Excuse me, man. As he left the field that day, even the Boston fans rose to their feet to give him a long ovation. I mean, the man had such awesome grace the way he moved. Could you imagine if he didn't have that knee injury? <laughs> He had a lot of things uh, holding him back, too, from being just totally incredibly awesome. So Joe had a fine season in 1947, leading the Yankees to the World Championship. 1948. He suffered from leg injuries, and the Yankees could not win. 
Joe played as often as he could in order to keep the team in the pennant race. During the closing days of the season, Joe could hardly walk, but he went into the lineup to help the Yankees try to catch up with the Red Sox and the Indians. On the next to the last day of the season, he slammed four hits at Boston, but he received little help from teammates and the Yankee lost. As he left the field that day, even the Boston fans rose to their feet to give him a long ovation. The fans knew that Joe's career was closing, was drawing to a close. Spring of 1949, in fact, it seemed to be over. Joe had undergone an operation on his injured foot during the winter. And during spring training, he discovered that the injury had, had not healed properly. Casey Stangles had just become the manager of the Yankees, and he was hoping to win a pennant in his first year as a Yankee at Yankee Stadium. But he knew that without DiMaggio, he did not have a chance. As the team, team traveled north to open the season, DiMaggio had to tell Stangles that he was not able to Boy, the pain in his foot was intense. The Yankees sent him home ahead of the team for further treatment. A foot injury very like DiMaggio's had put an end to Roger Hornsby's career. Joe feared that his own career was finished, too. He had to follow the progress of his team, of his teammates, from his bed. His foot was too sore to stand on. Joe's spirits were kept up by the news that the Yankees were doing surprisingly well. They got off to a fast start and took a grip on first base, first place. Though no one believed they could, they could stay there. The Red Sox, led by the marvelous Ted Williams, were too powerful. The baseball experts felt that the Yankees playing without their star would not be able to hold off the Boston team all season. Then one day, DiMaggio found that the soreness had left his foot. He could stand on it again and even walk comfortably. He went up to the Yankee Stadium, put on his old uniform with a big number five on the back, and took batting practice with his teammates. How does it feel, somebody asked him afterward. The heel feels fine, Joe told him. Joe told them, grinning. And so does the uniform. It feels so good. I think I'll wear it to bed. He did not wear it to bed, of course, but every day he went up to the stadium, put it on, and practiced with the others. Slowly his strength... And his timing began to return. When will you put DiMaggio back in the lineup, the newspaper man asked manager Stingle. I won't use him until he's ready to play, Stingle said. I want all of Joe, or nothing. Soon after the Yankees got ready to leave for Boston, where they would play an important three-game series with the Red Sox. The Red Sox were catching up fast now. 
They were determined to beat the Yankees two or three times and take over first place for themselves. It was then that DiMaggio told Stingle he was ready to play. The Boston fans were rooting hard for their own team. But when DiMaggio came to bed in the first inning, they they cheered him for his courage. Joe lined a single to left field and scored the Yankees' first run by a few moments later. In the third inning, Joe came to bat again, this time with a runner on base. He waited for the pitch, timed it perfectly, and drove it into the screen above the left field wall for the first home run of the season. The Yankees fought back. In the ninth inning, they put the tying run on base Ted Williams came to bat, began to look as if DiMaggio's great, great effort would be wiped out. DiMaggio, or Williams, swing! Williams, swing, swinging hard, slammed the ball to deep center field. DiMaggio, gliding back gracefully, caught the ball for the final out. I'm glad the Red Sox didn't tie it up later in the dressing room. I was so tired I couldn't play another another inning. It was the second game of the series. The Red Sox started to hit the ball as everyone had expected them to. They pounded the Yankee pitchers and built up a 7-1 lead. Then DiMaggio came in to bat in the fifth inning and hit a home run with two runners on base, putting the Yankees back in the game. Finally, they tied the score, and DiMaggio came to bat again. This time in the eighth inning, again, Joe timed the pitch perfectly and slammed a long home run to win the game for the Yankees. The whole country was talking about DiMaggio, just as the Yankees had second had seemed about to drop out of first place. Joe had come out of the hospital to put new life into them. The Yankees had stunned the Red Sox twice, and it was DiMaggio who was said delivered the hard, the hardest blow. Now, two teams met in the final game of the series. It's a pitcher's duel for seven innings. The Yankees left three to two, but the Red Sox were still dangerous. Then in the eighth inning, DiMaggio came to bat with two runners on base. Red Sox pitcher Mel Parnell worked carefully to Joe. The count went to three balls and two strikes. Parnell came in, Parnell came in with a pitch, and Joe pounded it to Joe pounded it into the light tower in top of the Top of the left field wall for the longest home run of the series. That was the winning blow. The Red Sox got one more run, but the Yankees won the game. Six to three. Boston's drive had been turned back. The Yankees went on to win the pennant and the World Series. When it was all over, they could look back to that dramatic series in Boston and say that it was the turning point in their big, in their 
turning point in their fortunes. Once again, the newspapers told the story. As Dimage goes, so go the Yankees. That was a good one. So yeah, Dimaggio was, was incredible. Um, he was he was just so graceful, and you know, and, and to the day he died, he remained a uh, very quiet person. He wasn't shooting his mouth off with the press or anything like that, like some of these guys do. And um, but yeah, he had every free, he had every offensive skill you could ever imagine. And if he played, if he played today, they would be even more. It would be even uh, more suited for DiMaggio, especially the DH. But uh, yeah, there's no doubt that he was the uh, he was the, he was one of the greatest right-handed hitters ever. And uh, it's too bad he had to go to the war because otherwise he would be uh, he would he would have been. And Hornsey and Hamlin had, had, had similar careers. But, uh, you know, Hornsby hit three, Hornsby hit 400, three out of four years, too. So, anyways, if nobody told you they love you today, I do. And I say that with the power of love. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it.